Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome, I'm Royful Brown. This is Mid-Atlantic, where we look at the news and the views from one side of Atlantic from the perspective of the other. At least that's our normal MO. Today we are casting our net further and wide. We're looking at the globe and we're specifically looking at the Institute of Economics and Peace who have a new piece of research out today. Now we're going to be speaking to Thomas Morgan who works at the IBP. And their work centers around understanding the drivers of violence and the relationship with attitudes and institutions and structures that foster peaceful environments. They are responsible for the renowned Global Peace Index, along with various national level indices and research papers examining the cost of violence on the global economy. Thomas's work focuses on analyzing changes in violence levels since 1950 with particular emphasis on the US, the UK and Australia and he explores long-term trends and the factors influencing and the implications for societal peace. The Institute of Economics and Peace has a new study out today uh, which basically details that deaths from conflicts are at the highest level seen this century. After months of preparations, the Russian President Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. The enemy has marked me down as number one target. They want to destroy Ukraine politically by destroying the head of state. The scenes unfolding in the streets and fields of Ukraine are nothing short of a tragedy. Brave young soldiers and innocent civilians are being cut down. Tanks are rumbling through towns and cities, missiles raining indiscriminately from the skies. During the past few months, I have to say that all of us were very impressed by the reaction and the resistance of Ukrainian people. Mr. Zelensky is facing down a nuclear power. We are all here. Our soldiers are here. The citizens of our country are here. We are all here protecting our independence, our country. 
the people of the United Kingdom stand with our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in the face of this unjustifiable assault on your homeland. Uh, Thomas, quite simply, very quickly, give us the cliff notes. Why are we seeing such a rise in the uh, mortality rates in conflicts around the world? No, that, that, that's absolutely right. It is uh, 2022 was the uh, so the highest number of conflict deaths uh, this century and the highest number since the end of the Rwandan genocide. Um, and that's happening across a number of different conflicts, of course. So much of the focus in the media over the past year has been on the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, but that's not actually where the most deaths from conflict occurred. So in Ethiopia in 2022, there were over 100,000 deaths from conflict then around uh, 80,000 deaths in the Ukraine. There was a substantial increase in conflict deaths in Mali. So it's happening across a number of different contexts, a number of different conflicts. I don't play devil's advocate here, but I suppose I need to slightly poke uh, the underlying premise here. Yes, global deaths are going up, but then so is global GDP. We're becoming more prosperous as a species. If we look at 2010, Global GDP was at 63.1 trillion US dollars. 2023, it's at 96.4 trillion American dollars. Isn't conflict a byproduct of our rising prosperity? I think that's a very good question. And there's certainly a lot of debate around the longer term trends in conflict and violence and whether we are actually seeing a long term decline. I think really, though, if it looks, looking particularly over the past decade, it has been a pretty sustained increase, particularly in conflict. So if you look at uh, what happened in Syria, extreme rise in the level of terrorism over the past decade. Having said that, of course, there are a number of factors which are linked to reducing levels of conflict, good governance, yes, sound business environment. So GDP growth, absolutely, generally speaking, associated with a fall in conflict. But it's not enough by itself to guarantee a reduction in conflict. And I think really what we're seeing over the past decade is is conflict being driven um, by a number of uh, other factors that are coming into play. But it's, but it's a rising of GDP and then with a lack of a global hegemon, or let's say two global hegemons who can keep their satellites um, on the leash, isn't it? Fundamentally, we're having a relative retreat of American power. We don't have a countervailing force throughout the world that can act also as the opposing policeman. And then with rising GDP, we are having, and if we look at Ethiopia, for example, Ethiopia has the, has the largest economic growth of all African states, I think, since about 20, 2010. That's exacerbated conditions on the ground. Could I just say that's the reason why, yes, it's unfortunate that we have uh, this spike in global deaths, but ultimately we are living in a more peaceful world we are if you look at certain long-term historical trends so if you're looking at violence within countries so looking at something like interpersonal violence or the decrease in homicide for example there has been absolutely a, a long sustained downward trends there, there but i think with, with the nature of conflict and conflict deaths i think it's too early to be saying that there's a, a sort of permanent reduction or going to be a permanent reduction in the level of conflicts. You can often have very volatile conflicts break out in situations where you wouldn't expect to see them and have very high numbers of deaths. That's certainly a, a 
part of the situation that you're seeing in Ethiopia. This is not something that's received a lot of media attention, not something that was predicted particularly by anyone. And suddenly you have a situation where you have, within the span of three months, 100,000 conflict deaths were totally unprecedented in the modern era. So I think it's probably, it's perhaps too early and too strong of a statement to say that this is a, a permanent reduction in the level of conflict. And why are these conflicts actually more deadlier now? Is this just technological advancement and are the fact that we can now kill our other brethren at an industrial rate? I think it's a combination of two factors. As you said, absolutely, technological development, so wider access to a, a wider variety of, of weapons. One of the interesting trends in the, the Global Peace Index this year is looking at the um, proliferation of drone usage. Um, which is becoming increasingly uh, something previously was something that you often see only from very av- economically advanced nation superpowers. But there's now a plethora of different types of drones, far more sort of mid-range drones, less expensive drones. And you're increasingly seeing not just state actors, but non-state actors as well using drones in conflict. And also seeing an increasing number of middle power countries exporting drones to countries all across the gro- globe. So it's not just that US, France, and so on using drones anymore. It's a, it's a wide range of countries. So there's definitely that technological aspect. The second aspect is the sort of increasing internationalization of conflicts. So over the past century, there was a shift away from conflicts between states to intrastate conflicts, smaller conflicts between armed groups within a country. But what we've seen, particularly over the last 20 years, is that almost every single conflict has external actors involved. So we're looking at the, the Global Peace Index data, the number of uh, countries involved in at least one external conflict, whether that's providing troops or as part of a coalition, that's increased from 58 countries 15 years ago to over 90 countries in the past year. So as a result of that, you have more countries involved, more resources dedicated, and that essentially leads to conflicts becoming more protracted. It leads to an increased risk of conflict relapse, even if a peace agreement is reached. So as conflicts become more drawn out, that, of course, increases the deadliness and the number of fatalities and so on. Are you then arguing for a, a global policeman? If, if I seem to go back and think about the post-war world, yes, there were conflicts, but they seem to be shorter. And if your research is anything to go by, they weren't as deadly. Is that fundamentally what the world is lacking? Are we in a multipolar world where the largest hegemon, the United States, is somewhat in retreat and we're seeing global instability really because of that? It's definitely been a strong reemergence of geopolitical factors driving conflict, even in just the last two or three years. So uh, looking at the, the, the period, the decade before that, there was a... a, a very large focus on the rise in terrorism, which wasn't really associated with traditional geopolitical conflict, but with the sort of the fall of the US as the world's hegemon, then yes, absolutely, that that geopolitical element is returning as a driving force in conflict. In terms of solving conflict or preventing these kind of conflicts, and that's not something we really, in terms of what international system is best placed to reduce the threat of conflict, it's not something we really look at in particular detail because our focus is more on those, as, as you said in the intro, the, the attitudes, the institutions, and structures at the national level um, that help build and uh, sustain peaceful societies. So that's more of our focus when it comes to conflict prevention.
Gotcha. The the global peace index showed a point four two deterioration in the average level of country peacefulness. Can you take us through that methodology? Because that is a, a, a rather small figure. Uh, yes, it's worrying in that it's going in the wrong direction, but tell us, give us some idea of how you work that out. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say with that, with the 0.42% reduction, so that's the average falling country score. And, and by itself, that's difficult to interpret. That doesn't sound like much. I think it needs to be put in the, the context of over the past 15 years. The size of that is it's one of the larger deteriorations and peacefulness that we've seen. So just to give a very brief overview of how the index works, there are 23 indicators in the Global Peace Index across three different domains of peacefulness. So we look at internal safety and security, ongoing conflict, and militarization. So internal safety and security is things like violent crime, homicide, um, the level of policing, things of that nature. Ongoing conflict is looking at yes, how many conflicts are countries involved in, deaths from conflict, whether it's uh, part of a, any external coalitions or involved in any external conflict. And then militarization is things like weapons imports, weapons exports, the size of the armed forces, mili- military expenditure as a percentage of GDP. Um, so those 23 indicators are uh, combined together into a single composite score, and they're not all given the same weight. So we have a, a, an expert panel of um, peace and conflict academics and researchers uh, which will give a different weighting to each of those indicators, and that's how the final score is produced. Gotcha. And then looking at some of the takeaways from the report, it says that global peacefulness has deteriorated in nine consecutive years with only two improvements since 2008. What were those years of improvement and, and why? Immediately preceding the Syrian civil war, I think I believe it was 2012 and 2013. But again, those were particularly small improvements year on year. It just happened to be a sort of lull period where they, we didn't see the, the large increase in terrorism that came about with the, the Syrian civil war in 2014. The events after the Arab Spring had died down a bit and there were general improvements across a number of indicators that have been improving for a long time. So if you look at something like the average homicide rate across all 163 countries in the GPI, that's been improving year on year, almost every year. So there's a sort of a longer term trend happening there. And then something like the size of the armed forces for most countries has also been declining for almost every year of the past 15 years. So in those two particular years where peacefulness increased, you didn't see any big surges in conflict, any big surges in terrorism, and those other background trends just continued to improve and so that was accounted for the the majority of the increase in peacefulness. Uh, The global economic impact of violence in 2022 according to the report was 17.5 trillion dollars or equivalent to 12.9 percent of global GDP or 2,200 US dollars uh, per person. Uh, I find these figures utterly fascinating. How exactly is that broken down? Is that a loss of economic output and or the cost of, let's say, policing and increasing militarization. Yeah, so it's both. The model incorporates both the money that is spent on violence prevention and then things like GDP losses from from conflict, from 
avoidance of economic activity from fear of crime, from injuries associated with violent crime, lost lifetimes earning from homicide and so on. So it combines all of those factors and that's where the, the $17.5 trillion figure comes from. Just to give you a, a sense of what how that breaks down across those different categories, the vast majority of that cost is military expenditure. So it's looking at like 40% of the total and then an additional 30% costs associated with internal security. So policing, incarceration, the judiciary system and so on. So the idea is that even though being realistic, of course, some military expenditure, some policing expenditure, spending on the, the judicial system is unavoidable and necessary, but that every dollar that's spent on violence prevention is a dollar that could have been spent elsewhere. And largely that that is, in an economic sense, unproductive spending. So it doesn't result in any positive multiplier effects doesn't have the flow-on effects you would see from spending on, say, education or healthcare. So that's how the figures arrived at. It's basically every single possible cost related to violence or violence prevention. So I've really focused on international conflicts or conflicts, armed conflicts within nations. And I think the report leads in with that. But if you do dig into it, you do talk about Iceland being the most kind of peaceful country in the world how much more difficult is it to then quantify let's say just the cost of crime or gun crime and its lost economic and in terms of its economic cost to a country yeah with these kind of comparisons and looking at a model that incorporates 163 countries across the world you're really looking at the the big ticket items where there's comparable data across countries. So to really drill down and, and look at the you know, municipal, look at the local level, the cost of crime, that's something that doesn't really fit within the, the Global Peace Index model, but it is something that we have looked at in specific reports on specific countries. So we did, a, for example, a report on the US, which went to a very detailed level on the cost of violence containment, down to looking at uh, spending on college campuses on security or the amount that companies spend on insurance or on crime prevention and so on. So to do that for every single country in a single study is too large of an undertaking, but it's certainly something we look at. So going back to one of the key findings of the report, it says that Europe, despite being the most peaceful region, deteriorated in all three GPI domains due to tensions with Russia. What conflicts are there going on in, in Oceania or let's say, large conflicts are there going on in, in South America and North America, which would put them less peaceful than Europe before the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Sure. With something like South America and Central America, it's not so much conflict as it is the indicators related to internal safety and security. So for a number of countries in Northern South America and in Central America, there's a, a particular issue with homicide. So you have a number of countries up until very recently in Central America that had homicide rates of over you know, 50 or 60 per 100,000. You compare that to countries in Europe where the homicide rate is around one or two per 100,000. So it tends to be in other regions. It's not so much particular conflicts as it is those measures of safety and security. With North America, so looking at, looking at the U.S., 
not only very high levels of militarization, so very high weapons exports, spending on the military, very large armed forces, but then also on a, a particular a set of safety and security indicators, just very high levels. So incarceration in the US, the homicide rate in the US has been increasing for, I, th- I think, the past five or six years is now two or three times higher than you would see in a number of um, Western European countries. So it's similar dynamics in Asia Pacific and South Asia as well. So it's not necessarily conflicts that are active, but uh, those, yeah, safety and security. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm, I'm a little bit simplistic, and I'm not saying that to, to de- declare any kind of level of false modesty. Very obviously, we should monitor how peaceful the globe is. Or wh- and whether that peacefulness is increasing or decreasing. Where I'm at a slight loss is a lack of any kind of prescriptions. And, and specifically, if I look at one of the things which you've reminded me, at, reminded me about is the situation in El Salvador, which was the deadliest country in the world in terms of murders up until... Uh, let's say about 2015, 2016, new regime comes in and they've spectacularly cracked down on gang violence and they've opened up a new prison which can house, I think, is 40,000 inmates, which is a significant... Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that has brought down their murder rate, their homicide rate, massively. But there, there are no prescriptions that... Your, your organization fundamentally is touting for the Institute of Economics and Peace, is it? And, and surely, if we want to get to a more peaceful world, and I think we all do, surely we don't just need the data, but we need some level of a prescription. I, no, I think that's a very fair point. And I think El Salvador is a great example, and absolutely right. Essentially, brought the homicide rate down to zero 
over the past six months, which where it from where it was is yeah spectacular reduction. In terms of uh, prescriptions, I think you have to look at the, the global peace index in coordination with a, a specific other piece of research we do, which is the positive peace index. So it's as as you say, it's not enough to just be looking at the data. It's useful in itself to track, but it's definitely not enough to be looking at that data. So what we want to do as a research organization, even though we're not a political organization, nonpartisan, we when we look at traditional areas of development studies, so where people look at education and healthcare and governance and so on, we want to link that explicitly to conflict. So when we measure development, when we put our positive peace index together, we don't want to just look at which development factors are important in of themselves. We want to look at those ones which are explicitly statistically linked to conflict. And so in doing that, in having those two different measures, you can then correlate them and compare them and you can look at countries and that gives you a much better sense of whether a the level of peacefulness is likely to last in the long term. Because if you have a situation where lots, as, as in El Salvador, where lots of resources are leveraged to bring down levels of violence. That can definitely work in the short term. Um, but what we found is that unless there's a uh, concordant increase in the factors that we've identified as being important to building peaceful societies, so governance, sound business environment, low levels of corruption, and so on, if you don't have that follow-up, then you're just going to have the same problem return eventually over the longer run. And we've seen that with a number of different conflicts. In the report this year, that one of the countries with the highest, biggest improvements in peacefulness is Libya. Now, that's not at all to say that the situation on the ground in Libya is safe and prosperous. All the factors that led to the conflict are still there. So if you look at Libya's score on the positive peace index, you can identify that that gap that needs to be made up in order for peace to be sustained in the long run. So even though we don't have specific policy prescriptions, we do definitely agree and definitely do have an understanding of the fact that looking at the violence and conflict data by itself is not enough. This is recorded at the podcast Mid-Atlantic, where generally we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Today we're speaking to Thomas Morgan, who works at the Institute for Economics and Peace. They have a big new study out today, which says that the world is getting the world's level of I'm going to say that again, that the world's conflicts are becoming much more deadly and are at the highest level we've seen this century. And we're drilling into some of the reasons why. Uh, Now is the time, if you're in the audience, uh, to raise your hand and to come up on stage and and ask a question uh, to Thomas. The first person is uh, Roger Mayhem. Roger, how the devil are you today, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing... I I just have a question because it seems to me that there's some things that are being conflated here. We're talking about peace between nations, but then we get into domestic violence that, that happens internally within a country. And I'm just curious why we're leaving out the fact, the idea of state-sponsored violence. It seems to me the obvious thing that's missing in this conversation is that countries have not agreed upon the mere fact that you should not invade other countries we should respect countries sovereignty and all the finger wagging that the west does about russia going into ukraine which by the way 
Russia should not be in Ukraine, but the West does it themselves. We could go back to Iraq, and I'm just curious why we're talking about crime and prisons and all of this kind of stuff, when the real problem is, when it comes to war and peace, is that you have malevolent governments that don't believe that it's wrong to initiate force on another country. What, like, how is that missing from this conversation? You just see, it seems like this conversation is missing the big point. I would say in response to that is that it's it's an explicit methodological choice and theoretical choice of the Global Peace Index to bring those two factors together. So we see violence, conflict, as all the different factors of violence and conflict being related. So I think, in fact, actually including them both in a single score actually better allows for that to be included in the conversation because you have some countries which do have very low levels of, say, homicide and crime and so on. And so including both of those measures allows them to be part of the same conversation. So you look at some of the countries in Scandinavia, which have very low levels of homicide, eternally very peaceful, but are actually, on a, in a per capita sense, some of the highest weapons exporters in the world. So if we didn't include those measures of militarization in the same place as talking about homicide and incarceration and so on, it tends to give a false sense of who is contributing to levels of peacefulness and violence in the world. So we'd see that as a theoretical decision to allow both of those factors to be part of the same conversation. Having said that, though, of course, when you have so many different factors included in a single index, there's always the chance that the focus gets muddied and you do have a a lack of emphasis on something which may be more important in a particular context. But then that's part of the broader work of the Institute for Economics and Peace. So, of course, not all of that dynamic can be captured in a single index, but it's definitely part of the other work that we do. Thank you for that. Excellent question and somewhat provocative question there, Mr. Mayhem. Eugenie, over to you, sir. Certainly, I couldn't listen to the whole conversation, so maybe you already covered this, but my question for you is, you think it's going to get even worse? Or, for example, the war in Ukraine, is this the last big conflict? Or this is only the beginning, so it's going to be even more yeah, that's a, a, a great question, and uh, I can't commit too strongly to a prediction in regards to what's going to happen in the near future. What I can say is that there are a number of situations where certain countries in the world as a whole is, is on something of a precipice. We think of the tensions at the moment between China and Taiwan, everything that's going on in Ukraine, but also then you look at the conflict in Ukraine and, and the implications it has around the world. The conflict in Ukraine has been one of the major sources, drivers of increasing food prices in the Sahel region, in Africa, for example, which is leading to very high levels of food insecurity and is is, uh, potentially exacerbating the security situation there um, over the next few years. So what I would say is that there are a number of key drivers of conflict which haven't been addressed and have been getting worse in the past two years. Having said that, the it's, it's impossible to make a firm prediction and say it's, it's going to get much worse or much better. And also the time frame over which these factors play themselves out can be much longer than you would expect. But if those tensions, if those issues aren't resolved, then there's absolutely, definitely the potential for increases in violence and conflict over the next decade. Just a quick one from me. Uh, one of the points that the study brought out 
says that political instability has deteriorated in 59 countries in the last year, whilst it's only showed an improvement in 22. Give us some sense of, let's say, the top three markers on political instability, uh, because are we talking about, let's say, moves against the judiciary that like we had Viktor Orban in Hungary, or are we talking about things which are a little bit more subtle uh, than that? Yeah, that's a great question. There are actually two indicators which um, deal with the issues that you're raising there. So political instability tends to be a more short-term dynamic indicator of whether there's, for example, yes, tensions between the different um, functions of government, whether there's peaceful transfer of power, where there's just general political unrest related to, say, short-term economic conditions or food prices whether there's electoral-related violence and so on. So those are the things that go into measuring political instability. But then we also have another indicator, which is intensity of internal conflict. And that looks more at polarization in the long term, whether there are fundamental positional differences between different groups within a country that, that have the potential to lead to violent conflict over the longer term. So it incorporates both those short-term, more dynamic factors and then those longer-term, more subtle issues which can drive political conflict. Many political scientists actually say that the US has seen a massive polarisation, let's say, in the last 40 years, definitely the last uh, 15 years in terms of its kind of political rhetoric. Could you give us some other countries which are not experiencing any level of a hot civil war, but are maybe marching towards political instability because of the factors of which you've just outlined. Yes, yeah, so as you said, yeah, the, the US is absolutely the, the number one example where you're seeing those issues related to polarisation play themselves out. But almost to a far lesser extent, but the same sort of factors are being played out in a number of um, countries in Western Europe. The, the dynamic's not the same. Oh, sorry, the, the strength of the dynamic is not the same, but it's the same sort of factors um, across almost every country in, in Western Europe, I would say. Gotcha. Piotr, you've waited patiently. What's your question, sir? Hi, Royfield. Yeah, greetings from Poland. I've got a few things to say, but I'll convert into more of a question. So, um, we're, we're living in a world which is more entwined, multipolarity is, is only here. Uh, Ukraine is the conflict that's had the most global ramifications for obviously everyone, but and not many people consider that Ethiopia civil war in the past two years was arguably the most of the 21st century. How much is it that it's, it's also a perception, a uh, sense of what we cover, what we used to cover, uh, influences on what we consider to be deadly or not? Sudan's coup has killed over 2,000 people and it barely gets any coverage in the news. I'm glad you're drawing distinctions between political internal strife and, you know, interest aid and state and so on. We're just wondering what your one on the perception question and also two, as we are firmly in the sort of more multipolarity, what your what, what do you believe about this uh, the China uh, axis? Given what's happened in the past three days with Wagner and the uh, corrosion, I'd be just curious to think that could influence overall stability because, from my understanding of multipolarity, it tends to lead to bipolarity. Bipolar are inherently more stable because you have two main poles offset one another, whilst multipolarity is 
jumble. Uh, if you only on the question, let me know. But uh, those two questions, I'm grateful for you. Thanks. Sure. No, thank you. So to to deal with your second question first, yeah, it did. Yes, obviously, tremendous amount happening over the past few days. A, a good example of of how of multipolarity and how events in one country can have strong influences elsewhere. I think is the fact that the Russian foreign minister had to come out and reassure a number of countries in sub-Saharan Africa that Wagner Group would not be withdrawing in the short term because they're very active in Mali, very active in the Central African Republic, active to a lesser degree in a number of countries in Africa, playing a, a key geopolitical role for Russia in that region. As to the question of whether multipolarity will eventually lead to a more stable bipolar bipolarity situation, it's it, that kind of of international relations, geopolitical analysis is just a, a little bit too far outside of the penumbra that IEP deals with. So I'll have to remain uh, silent on that particular uh, question. To, to your first question around perceptions, just a, a specific point about the conflict in Ethiopia. First, it's a, a part of the reason why there's been, of course, such a lack of coverage is the, the media blackout and the internet blackout which was put in place by the government, which interestingly originally was done under the auspices of disinformation. So they were saying that the disinformation was coming out and that was one of the reasons given for restricting access to information. There have been some journalists, some foreign journalists trying to get into the country, some research organizations studying satellite imagery, for example, to try and get information. But that conflict is quite unique in terms of just the lack of available information and the lack of available data. But to the perceptions question more broadly, yeah, absolutely, of course. There are, not just in Ethiopia, but a number of conflicts in the past 10 years which get barely any coverage. But it, the reason for that, the reason why some the conflicts get more coverage than others, of course, the, the, for example, with Ukraine, the geopolitical ramifications are such that it was guaranteed to get more coverage. So it's not necessarily just a question of where the focus is or that focus being arbitrary. There are reasons why some conflict, unfortunately, why some conflicts are going to receive more attention than others. Thank you for your input there, Piotr Curzon. In Poland, Benjamin, what's your question or point to Thomas? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Thomas. What do you think about the perverse incentive various... Uh, a rise of the value of commodities. Let's take oil, for example. But there are other things like rare uh, minerals. point is that when you have a conflict, the value of these commodities can actually go up. And because they're untraceable, you can provide them to a market that you're destabilizing with your war. Any comment on the effect of perverse incentives? I mean, I'm it's absolutely a factor. Drawing on the, the most recent examples we've been looking at in Central Sahel region and around access to yes, certain resources, access to gold and so on, yes, it absolutely plays a part. Exactly quantifying size of that, the role it plays and, and whether it leads to conflicts being um, more protracted is not something that I could answer, unfortunately. But it, it certainly plays a role. Thank you for that question, Benjamin. Pavel, who I believe you, you, you're in Poland, aren't you? Poland as well. Poland born and raised. 
Um, hi, Thomas. My question is the direct link between the level of advancement of the technology used in, in the conflict and how deadly it is. I assume that the deadliest conflicts are last year were Yemen and Ethiopia, and probably in, in Yemen, it's a widespread use of airstrikes, bombings, etc., while in Ethiopia, I believe that the main weapon of choice would be AK-47, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. So, yes. Yes. So to answer your question, it's not like a, a direct, excuse me, a direct linear relationship between military sophistication, capability, technology, and uh, the, the deadliness of a conflict. And again, with, with Ethiopia as the example of, of where there have been the most deaths over the past year, there was very limited information about exactly how that conflict played out in 2022, more information from 2021. But yes, my understanding is with that kind of warfare, it was mostly poorly trained conscription troops fighting in massed infantry waves, which led to so many of the casualties and why the casualty count was so high. So clearly there, it's, in that particular conflict, it's not a question of increased military sophistication necessarily. I think, and also with something like drones, we're again seeing over the past few years, it's actually the rise and in increased usage of mid-range, cheaper drones. So it's increased access to a certain kind of technology, but not necessarily the most advanced form of that technology. And where that has that great greatest impact is where you tend to have asymmetrical warfare situations where if you have one side that has access to that kind of technology and the other side doesn't, that can lead to a, a, a sharp increase in the deadliness of conflict in a very short time period. So generally speaking, over the longer term, yes, um, there is a relationship between increasing military capability, sophistication, technological sophistication, and the deadliness of conflict. Uh, but over the shorter term, looking at specific conflicts, it's not a clear linear relationship. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. One of the things that you, you did say before and you've just uh, repeated then is it's mid-state actors who are adding to this uh, technological arms race, or at least the, the barrier to entry for them to get onto it, it isn't so high now. So we have Iran supplying uh, tens of thousands of drones actually to Russia, which we've seen have deadly effect in the present conflict with Ukraine. So that just goes to underline the point you're making. And I would add two more examples of that would be that um, um, Turkey over the past few years has been one of the biggest exporters of drones to Ethiopia, to a number of countries in the Sahel region. But then the other interesting example of increased use of technology is the conflict in Myanmar, because there you have access to very cheap drones over the Chinese border, and you have a huge number of non-state groups using drones, using cheap drones for attacks, not only military attacks, but attacks on infrastructure for surveillance and so on. So that's perhaps, I think, the, the, the one conflict where you've seen the most widespread adaptation of drone usage by the, the largest number of actors, particularly non-state actors. Last question goes to you. Eagle, fire your question over to Thomas. Okay, Thomas. So my question is, do you think that uh, global rise and deadlier conflict are in correlation with the deterioration of United Nations and international law from, let's say, 1999 and unlawful 
bombing of Yugoslavia and after that we have Iraq, after that we have Georgia. Do you think that uh, international law losing their power and the United Nations lo losing their grip and that's why we're seeing the rise of this kind of stuff you, you're mentioning and maybe in giving the wind in the back for the smaller country to doing internally stuff they're doing. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you for the question. I think within United Nations circles, there's certainly a very strong focus on trying to reform how the United Nations operates and to try and make it more effective. It's a, a constant topic of discussion in those circles, concerns about the, the um, uh, lack of influence and the downfall of the, of the role of international law. Um, the extent that can be separated out or bracketed out from the changing status of America as a global hegemon, I think that would be a very interesting topic to explore in more detail. Certainly, you have seen this a, a rise in the level of conflicts in conjunction with the sort of the fallen influence of the United Nations. Whether those two things are directly related is perhaps a, a topic that would require more detailed discussion than we can go into at this point. But yes, very interesting question and certainly something that, that people within the United Nations system are particularly concerned with. Thank you very much, Thomas. Mm -hmm. And thank you for that final question. Well, uh, Thomas, do you have any kind of closing, closing salvos, any takeaways from the report, which maybe we haven't touched on, which you'd like to uh, leave with us? I'd like to mention one good news story to end on, if that's okay, because it's been a pretty uh, interesting but grim discussion in terms of increasing conflict deaths and so on. Uh, so one of the things we wanted to look at the report is to see if there are any areas where you've had a a uh, sort of peace contagion effect. Are there any success stories, sub-regional success stories, we can say, okay, we've had a number of countries which have faced potential threats to peacefulness where there has been an improvement over time. And so the one area we looked at in particular was coastal West Africa, where we found that there's, over the past few decades, been high levels of instability and political violence. But what we found in that uh, the majority of countries in coastal West Africa actually had improvements in peacefulness over the past 15 years. So if you look at uh, all the countries between um, Morocco and Ghana in coastal West Africa, there wasn't a single death from terrorism, for example, last year, despite the fact that over 43% of terrorism is occurring in the adjacent central Sahel region. And you start looking into the reasons for that, and you see there's been increased resourcing, increased cooperation between countries, increasing role for African countries in African-specific peacebuilding missions as well. So it's not necessarily a completely doom and gloom story. There are examples of where you have countries working together to improve peacefulness and improve and build those attitudes, institutions, and, and structures that help build peaceful societies. So certainly many tensions related to conflicts, much potential for violence in the world as it is, but it's not 100% a doom and gloom story. So I think it's perhaps good to end on a, a slightly positive note. A great note to end on, especially if you look at somewhere like Ghana, which is now sadly a middle-income country which has strong, robust internal governmental structures, etc. And especially when you think that the, the vast majority of those West African countries, multi-ethnic and their state structure is only somewhat 60, no more than 70 years old. 
and they've had to uh, create a new nation out of disparate peoples, uh, many of which were traditional rivals, if not out-and-out enemies, whilst having uh, whilst trying to do this in a, a hostile economic environment. So the story of Ghana is most definitely a, a tremendous one. Thank you for ending on that great note. Tell us where people can read the study, Thomas. Sure, absolutely. So the website is visionofhumanity.org. That's uh, a public-facing communications website where all the, the reports are released, but also the um, interactive data visualization, the interactive maps, and all our other reports on. So we do other similar reports, Global Terrorism Index, Ecological Threat Register, related to all those different aspects of conflict. So yeah, visionofhumanity.org is where you can find all our reports. There you go. There's been another Mid-Atlantic. I'm trying to put out more content at the moment because, quite simply, I think we live in turbulent times and it's good for us to learn from each other. So at least we are better informed about the turbulence which our countries and the world is going through and we can learn from that knowledge. My tiny little bit to help civil discourse is to try and put out more mid-Atlantic so we're going up from our three a month to hopefully one forward slash two a week and this is part of that please write us a positive review on Apple iTunes or on any other podcasting service it's the best way for us to get news of the podcast out there and if nothing else go tell your mum go tell your brother go tell a family member to subscribe to the podcast and download it because a goodly few thousand of you do for each episode but we need to get those figures up again thank you to thomas morgan thank you to eagle roger benjamin pavel and les for their excellent questions and we'll see you all again soon but don't forget left to center politics is right thinking politics but we try not to demonize our right-leaning brothers and sisters we try and win them over the strength of our argument but we do have to finally admit after 40 years of the neoliberal experiment that neoliberalism has failed we need a new economic paradigm but we need to build that together as a society and as nations throughout the world take care look after yourselves bye-bye Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.